BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Welcome back to part two of this week's podcast. We've had to cut it into two for technical reasons. It's not us, it's them. It's not even, you can't even complain to the BBC. It's like the man. It is. Is the man outside with a pair of scissors literally cutting podcasts in half? It's the sense. It's the it's the podcast sensor. It is. Should what we is rise it? up? Yes, we should rise up and cast off the shackles of our oppression. Anyway, so we've cut the podcast into two for them aforementioned reasons. Mark, what's in part one? Probably the top ten: the interview with Imogen Poots and Jesse Eisenberg, and a review of Vitalina Varela. But who knows? And still to come. Uh, maybe onward, military wives and escape from Pretoria. But again, your guess is as good as mine. Exciting. So on with part two or whatever it is. If you just joined us, you've missed our conversation with Jesse Eisenberg. Who he's? You would have switched on halfway through that conversation. That's definitely Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg. Eisenberg. It's funny because he does. He almost sounds like a Jesse Eisenberg impersonator. He is yeah. so Jesse Eisenberg. And Imogen Poots talking about Vivarium. Also, uh, the box office top ten and uh, some splendid lobby correspondence. And when we were doing the, the top 10, because there was so yes. much stuff going on, uh, I had to skimp over some of the correspondence. So I just want to dip into three Please, go ahead. that were that were very big. And your review of Military Wives is coming up uh, in this half hour. Yes. First of all, Parasite, which we've discussed a lot. A lot. There's not much to be said. However, uh, a very interesting email from Dr. Jian Kaya. Okay. Associate Professor in Korean Language and Linguistics at the Oriental Institute at the University of Oxford. Okay, so that's basically, that means whatever he says is right, because that's about as qualified as it's possible to be. You'd think so, yes. Absolutely, I I entirely agree. Okay, and are we now going to be savagely corrected? No, no, no. It's it's an interesting observation. Good doctors, I'm a short-term listener, first-time emailer, put on to you by my long-listening husband. I have enjoyed immensely your talks and references to Parasite over the last weeks, and in particular, your conscientious use of the honorific term Director Bong in your address of him. Yes. I am an associate professor in Korean linguistics at Oxford University, and I'm in the middle of writing a paper reflecting on different power dynamics within the profession of film in particular and our language more genuinely. Okay. One thing I find extremely interesting is the way US, UK and Canadian media address Bong as... Director Bong, presumably to show respect as a courtesy. In Korea, people indeed never call each other directly by name. It feels almost naked. We need to find the right speech styles and terms to talk to each other, and this is incredibly important. Though there is always leniency shown to foreign speakers, if you get this wrong as a native speaker, you will deeply offend the person and risk breaking the relationship Permanently. Okay. In Korea. Good good to know. Yes, but flexibility. Yes, fine. In Korea, age-related seniority and also social hierarchy are key to finding the appropriate terms. Okay. It is a complex matter, though, where age, gender, social status all need to be considered. I'm interested that this complexity is now causing certain anxiety with Western film commentators and audiences already tasked with having to gingerly step over the one-inch barrier, something which is the reference to subtitles, which we've referred to a lot in previous weeks, something I by no means want to discourage. However, I notice in the Western media, while director Bong is addressed with an honorific, his actor, Song Kang-ho, is often only addressed as... Song. Song. This inconsistency reflects our somewhat tortuous linguistic legacy where professions such as medical doctors, directors, professors and lawyers are implicitly considered as noble, but actors are not a hangover from the uh, Chozon dynasty. 
Anyway, I want to thank you for highlighting this dated legacy and linguistic injustice to the noble acting profession, uh, down with the Nazis and all linguistic hierarchies. So what's really interesting about this is I think we did the right thing. In, well, the, the director Bong thing, as I said, came directly from John Hurt. Right. Because John Hurt referred to, uh, you know, John Hurt, who was in Snowpiercer, was very specific about referring to him as Director Bong. That's where I got it from. But what Jian is is suggesting here is is that 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 should be extended. That that the social hierarchy is the problem, that the directors and doctors and professors and lawyers get some kind of title. But the actors don't. Yes. uh, And implicitly, the acting profession is being considered not as noble. No, that's an interesting point. I wonder what the correct term would be, therefore, for an actor, what 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 their they their prefix would be? Because obviously, I don't. Yes, I mean, but you wouldn't say actor, actor song. So presumably, seems... but maybe Jian's point is that that's what you should do. The fact that song hasn't got some kind of title is imp- that's the problem. No, so no, therefore... I, no, I understand. And what I'm saying is that in order to rectify that, should should one refer to him as actor song? And uh, Spur, you won't know this, but Spurs have a South Korean player, right? Called Sun Hyung Min, who okay. everyone refers to as Sunny. That's basically what we call him. And uh, but maybe that falls into this. Say he's the same as an actor. He's a footballer, so he doesn't yeah, get yeah. a title. Yeah. Well, look, thank you for that email because that's very informative. Anyway, down with linguistic hierarchies, <laughs> as Jian uh, says. So that's very interesting. Also on the subject of parasite, I can I say I I am I am very very conscious of not of trying to get that stuff. I, I hate that thing about, uh, uh, you know, not knowing what the... Uh, the, th- the time I feel most uncomfortable is when I don't know what the correct address for somebody the pro- is. The issue is when you someone says, if you're going to be polite, you do this. And then Jian, who clearly knows... What, what he's talking about. Uh, he or she... Don't, don't know. I'm sorry. It's, I'm a, again, it's, I'm, it's a her. It's, it's a, her. Jian, she, she. Hello, Jian. So, and thank you very much, Steve, for listening and informing us uh, about this. And Jian is saying... You've highlighted a problem in 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 linguistics. Yeah, it shouldn't this social hierarchy shouldn't be there? Absolutely. Anyway, also on the subject of parasite, Max Carey. I had the misfortune of forgetting my headphones in the gym today and had to listen to whatever dirge they were playing over the speakers. It largely washed over me without leaving any impression. However, my attention was piqued by some guy called Endor, apparently inciting four-time Oscar winner Bong Joon Ho to pump it up. <laughs> Whatever the bird song that means, this is it. There you go. Bong Joon Ho, pump it up. Yeah, okay, that's, we got it. No, they're definitely, you're quite right, Max. You're quite right. It does. That Say, is. Bong Joon-ho, pump it up. And not even direct to Bong Joon-ho. No, no, just... It's outrageous. But maybe, so maybe Endor is saying, you know, down with linguistic hierarchies, I'm just going to get on with that. Um, this from uh, Stephanie. Uh, Dear rustling ponchos and honking ships, I was happy on a long walk in the countryside listening to your gentle witterings and giggling quietly to myself when I heard one of your listeners' reviews of Emma. Okay, this is a couple of weeks ago. Okay. I had been daydreaming a little, so missed the beginning, but woke up at the phrase that the listener was watching Emma quotes with his girlfriend at the outdoor cinema under Sydney Harbour Bridge. I got the first tug of the heartstrings as my son is currently living and working in Sydney with his girlfriend and had sent a picture from the same cinema to our family WhatsApp chat and also 
whilst also watching Emma, feeling both a little sad because number one son is 12,000 miles away, but also happy because I felt a little closer to him. I listened with more attention. As Simon continued to read out the email, I was struck with how like my son the writer was. Can as you, he, see, you as, see where this is going? As he described the persistent rain simply adding more atmosphere, I thought that's just what Simon would have said because my son is called Simon. Simon. However, once we got to the description of the ponchos being handed out as, quote, more rustly than a big bag of rustlematic rustle bags, I knew it was him and promptly burst into tears. Oh. I managed to snivel and laugh through the Sydney Harbour Bridge ship and the honking of its departure, although it was with unattractive snotty snob, uh, sobbity sobs and added gulping rather than the elegant tear down the cheek. I've since replayed that section of your podcast more than 20 times, as well as bored other family members who are members of the church saying, listen at 26 minutes, listen at 26 minutes. Anyway, thanks for making me feel extremely close to my son. Stephanie. That's fantastic. And that is the rather rubbish photograph that son Simon sent um, from Sydney. It's just like a big red That's the picture of the, of the poncho. And on the subject of Portrait of a Lady on Fire... Which I love, 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 love. Simon Dewsbury says, I've been to see Portrait at Sheffield's wonderful showroom cinema. How can anyone say that films aren't what they were when we have this and Parasite on our screens at the same time? Yeah. I was in bits at points in Portrait. At one point, I was holding back sobs at the sight of a... Mm. On a... Mm which made me wonder about a variant of the smallest hill discussion. What has been the smallest or most unexpected thing in a film which has caused church members to find that they have uh, unusual amounts of dust in their eyes? For me, it's that on a... But also, Alan Rickman looking out of a window in Truly Madly Deeply. Also, a line of coaches pulling into Hyde Park in Pride. And I knew, I, before you even I knew that was where that sentence was going. And a teenage girl making a clicking noise with her mouth to her father in Leave No Trace. But I suspect that others will have moments just as small, but just as important. Anyway, excuse me while I compose myself a little. Thinking about all of those, one after the other, is a bit much. But those show-don't-tell tiny moments are such an important part of the greatness of cinema. Kieran Sundstrom. Uh, I saw the beautiful and sensual portrait of a lady on fire at a Valentine's Day preview. It's a slow burn of escalating desire through the framing, uh, art, myth and literature using occasional gothic cliché to accentuate the emotional heft. I do like the word heft. Heft, yeah. It's working hard in that sentence. For such a beautifully realised romance... It's perhaps startling that the moments that last longest in the mind are accentuated by rare music. The sequence of women singing on the beach yeah. is vividly unsettling and the final scene with the focus on a single face as Vivaldi thunders out is captivating and breathtaking. I loved it. And Andrea in Brighton. While 2020 is already off to a strong start for cinema, Jojo Rabbit, Lighthouse, Parasite, it was Portrait of a Lady on Fire or Poloff. As no one is calling it. Uh, that finally compelled me to write in to express the depth of feeling this film evoked. In the two days following my first watch, I found it playing on my mind so much that I had to watch it a second time. While some have described the film as slow, a continental friend described it as typically French, <laughs> with a scoff, I prefer, prefer to think that the director, Céline, and how do you pronounce the surname? Well, I've always said Céline Siamar. Is ensuring every scene... Every longing gaze and every line of dialogue in this film has room to breathe. There is no fat. There is no place to hide any flaw. Scenes of painting process itself upset 
sorry, scenes of the painting process itself allow scenes of the painting process itself allow us to witness something beautiful coming to fruition before our very eyes as a mirror to this burgeoning relationship. Adele Enel is perfectly cast as someone with a brooding mystique and a face from which you can't look away. The pairing of Marianne and Eloise contained more chemistry than a periodic table. As the credits rolled, I looked at my partner, Naomi, who was in tears, overwhelmed. I put my head on her chest and heard her heartbeat and thought of the quiet, simple joy of being fully in the moment with your person. This is a stunning piece of work and I was sad to see it had such a limited cinema release here in the UK. With time, I hope it will receive the deserved recognition as the near-perfect film it is. And while this may be an LGBT story in essence, anyone who has felt the all-consuming pull of limerescence should appreciate limerescence. Limerescence. I don't know that word. I'm just saying it's out there. No, okay, I, fine. I, 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 should appreciate and relate to this intimate depiction. Finally, let's hear it for a rare sighting of female pipe smoking. Yes. Committed to the big screen. <laughs> Perhaps Celine Siama is a fan of the show. Is there pipe sm- female pipe smoking? There is female pipe smoking, yeah. In fact, when I was... I've seen the film a couple of times now. The right, first well, time I thought it, I did almost feel like I, I must call you afterwards and tell you... Yeah, there's there a you go. This, yeah. is a re- this is a reference yeah. in case you've joined us recently. We tried to find, obsessively, we tried to find women who smoke pipes. And if you are a woman who smokes pipes, then get in touch because you're in a small group now celebrated in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I say a few things about this, which yes. is I do think Celine Sema is a really is an astonishingly good filmmaker. The, the film won Best Screenplay at the Cannes Film Festival. And two terrific performances, obviously, Adele and Al and Celine Sema were both recently in the press for very militantly and correctly walking out of, uh, of the Caesars in protest uh, at the, the Roman Polanski win. But what's really interesting is that, um, I mean, they've worked before together uh, on, on film. And if you look back at Celine Sema's back catalogue, if you look back to Water Lilies and, and Tomboy and then Girlhood or, you know, Bon de Fille, as it was called in France, what you see is this filmmaker simply never putting a foot wrong. And I feel the same way about her back catalogue as I do about the films of Lynn Ramsey. When you go Ratcatcher, Morven Caller, We Need to Talk About Kevin, You Were Never Really... You know, there are very few filmmakers who can have a run of movies in which they just get better and better. And I loved uh, Bonfi. I loved Girlhood. I thought it was just fantastic. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is it's kind of another level, firstly, because it's, you know, it's historical setting, it's a period setting. Um, and what it's managing to do is, like I said, it's really philosophically radical. And yet, whilst you're watching the film, you never think that. You never think that uh, her description of the film as, you know, as basically a manifesto about the female gaze, you never think I am watching something that is being polemic. What you think is I'm watching something that is, and there is a particular scene in it, that scene that was referred to about the, the scene of singing, because the music in it is diegetic. It happens within the, the context of the film itself. It's not incidental music. And the Vivaldi at the end, and the, you know, Parawan was involved in doing the, you know, the that, that song, which is actually called Portrait of a Lady on Fire, or because the French title is Portrait of a Young Woman on Fire. Um, that scene is up there with the most brilliantly magical, eerie, incandescent, indefinable things I have ever seen in the cinema. That particular scene, the, the scene from which the film takes its title, is mesmerising. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that in years to come, people will look back at that scene 
and will analyse why it is that it's working so powerfully. Is that a money-back guarantee? It's a money-back guarantee. 421, you're listening to Five Live. There's some <laughs> new stuff uh, that's out. And but thank you again always for the emails uh, because we'd be rubbish without you. Yes, uh, well, yes, reliably. Yes, reliably rubbish. So, uh, Military Wives. So, Military Wives, which is the new film by Peter Catania, who, of course, has directed many things, but uh, most famously Full Monty, which uh, it's weird now because... We all remember Full Monty as being a huge hit, okay? Yes. When Full Monty was first screened, nobody had a sense of how big it was, that it was going to become this great big, you know, Oscar contender, that it was going to be something that was a, an international phenomenon. In the same way as I don't think people thought that about Secrets and Lies, the Mike Lee film. It, in retrospect, you look back at those kind of really big hits and think they were always really big hits. But I remember seeing Full Monty when it was first screened in the West End and thinking, this is really interesting. It's a really good film, but it's an odd, sort of quirky, strange film. So anyway, um, it is uh, inspired by a sort of fairly well-known life story that obviously was the basis of a BBC TV series. Um, it has a couple of great performances. So Chris Scott Thomas, who I absolutely love, um, is on, uh, she lives on a military base, Flitcroft military base. She's a colonel's wife. She is grieving for the loss of her son who followed uh, her, his father into the armed forces. And her husband is played by Greg Wise, is increasingly sort of estranged from her. And he is going back out on another tour of duty, back out to Afghanistan. Um, she's decided that she's going to throw herself into uh, being more involved in the social committee for everyone who is back on the basis whilst their partners, uh, so these are partners of service personnel, are you know out on tours of duty. Sharon Horgan is uh, Lisa, who, whose uh, partner has recently been promoted and she now finds herself in charge of organising what's traditionally, you know, coffee mornings or potluck sessions or, uh, or you know, walks in the country. And this all, it's described as it all sounds a, li a bit little women until somebody says, well, why don't we try singing? And the suggestion of singing somehow catches fire. But the thing is that, it, that you now have two people trying to organise the singing group, one of whom is Kate, who comes from a kind of classical background, and the other of whom is Lisa, who thinks they should just try having a bash at, uh, at some pop songs, what Kate rather disparagingly refers to as sober karaoke. So, so why don't we... <laughs> Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Okay. Um, uh, thanks very much, Lisa. That's lovely. Um, so today's practice is going to focus on something called count singing. Now, don't panic. It's a very easy exercise to help us with pitch and rhythm without having to learn lyrics. Why don't we just sing a song? Just because this is just how I learned it at school. So. One, one, two, one. One, two, three, two, one. One, two, three, four, three, two, one. See? It's very easy. All together now. One, one, two, one. One, two, three, four, three, two, one. One, two, three, four, five. No, sorry. No, there's no five. No five. I know you're going to... Uh, we haven't talked about this. We no, haven't. we haven't. We've not discussed it at we all. Haven't discussed no, we, we genuinely haven't. I'm not saying that. I, ironically, we have But I know you're going to like it because Why? while you were describing it, you were smiling. Really? You just you did a you did a straightforward introduction into that. Clip. I just I just did the plot, didn't no, I? You no, know, you you did you just did the plot, but you were smiling while you said it. Okay. So I know that's my that's my gut feeling. All right, that okay. you're going to like this. All right, so let me try to confound your expectations. Okay, so let's start by by saying the things that are that, that are wrong with the film. Okay, on it, there is no question that it has a kind of fairly cliched formulaic approach to its story that it is very broad strokes in the way in which it tells its story, that 
characters can be reduced to thumbnails, you know, the, 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 the person who, who can sing but can't, the person who can't sing but can. Um, it's also true that if you have an aversion to any form of kind of, uh, you know, cliche or um, uh, uh, manipulative uh, emotional filmmaking, then you'll find much to, to, to bulk about. So I think that there are several things about the film that, that one could, could criticise, and I think they're legitimate criticisms. I also think that, for example, if because there's a narrative connection, if you compare it to something like Brassed Off, it doesn't have, I would say, the the heft, to use a word that you yes. were using earlier, of Brassed Off, nor does it have the dramatic elegance, say, of Calendar Girls. And I said earlier on when we were talking about Escape from Pretoria that you can tell how good a film is by how much the things that are wrong with it don't matter. And at the risk of sounding like a stuck record, all those things that I've just said are wrong with Military Wives. And I don't care. There you go. Boom. And the reason I don't care is because I've seen Military Wives twice now, okay? And both times, and frequently against my better judgment, I cried my eyes out and laughed my head off. Now, I should be clear when I say that I have a particular um I have a particular affection for movies that work on an emotional level. I've always thought that thing that I think it was Roger Ebert who I've credited with saying it is that you know cinema is a machine for creating empathy and I think that one of the problems with um, responses to cinema particularly you know a, a, a kind of analytical academic critical response is that you know, when I was talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I quoted the Celine Siamar thing about, you know, she, she said it was a, you know, a, a manifesto about the female gaze. And I said, but when you're watching it, you don't think that. What you think is you're watching a, a slow-burning love story mystery. In the case of this, I think it's very easy to imagine. I mean, there are certain, also, there are certain key sort of things, like, for example, I cannot hear anybody singing two lines of Cindy Lauper's Time After Time without, it's just like a, pierced to my heart because that song has a particular significance for me that is purely autobiographical in the way that you know a certain pop song because of a certain period in your life will stick in your heart and nothing will ever shake it when I was reviewing you know Mamma Mia I said those songs they're indestructible doesn't matter what you do with them the thing with this is firstly it has two or three things going for it Firstly, the script by Roseanne Flynn and Rachel Tunnell who are both very good writers has details in it that just get under your skin. Little details about the lives of people living with their partners on tours of duty. Little phrases, little, just small details amongst this broad stroke characterization. Somebody packing away their partner's belongings for the length of time that they're away. Somebody asking, how do you cope with it? Do you, do you just not talk about it? And then being greeted by silence. Those little details gave it just enough grit to get under the skin. The second thing is the performances are good. It's a, it's a very good ensemble cast, and it has at the centre of it a dynamite chalk and cheese pairing of these, you know, two characters who are absolutely kind of, you know, antithetical. And one of them is, you know, uptight, and, and nobody does brittle quite like Chris Scott Thomas. She does a great job of it. And uh, Sharon Hogan is very, very good as Lisa, who's kind of much more sort of free thinking. And the third thing is that. The film is sort of almost machine-tooled in the way in which it understands um, the, the emotional beats of its story. It's machine-tooled like a pop song because it's not just once. 
but it's three or four times that I found myself in, in floods of tears. And I really think that we underestimate just how hard it is to do that because heaven knows I've seen enough movies in which I felt they're, they're button pushing and I just, and I kind of rile against them watching a movie like that once and that happening. I saw it without anybody else the first time round. Um, it, that's okay. Second time round, I was watching it in a screening for a bit and I genuinely found myself doing this. I had my hand up against my, you know, I wished it was in 3d. I had my hand up against my head because it, the tears were running down my cheek. Wow. I thought it, so for all the things that are wrong with it, and there are many, many things that are wrong with it, it worked. It works. And I guarantee you that if I saw it again, it would work again. Yeah. It would be interesting to have, uh, we're going to have uh, next week's programme, Gugu and Barter Roy is on, yeah. talking about misbehaviour, which is about the 1970 Miss World competition. Yes, yeah. When Fascinating uh, subject. Yes, fascinating subject. But when you were talking about... Uh, machine tooled two women up against each other in in misbehavior there's uh Kira Knightley and Jesse Buckley right doing that both fine yeah. performers that's right and I think the template is pride and that's okay. I think where we will okay. discuss that okay uh next week but on the subject of military- I should say pride is a better movie than uh the military wives and Brasov is, is a better movie than military wives okay it, but it does but it doesn't mean that because because pride is really there's almost nothing wrong with Pride, is there? It's like it's really... And George Mackay. Of course. Of course. In everything. Paul Hunt sends us an email. Uh, on a recent trip to the uh, new shiny local world of City in the also new shiny shopping centre in Eastbourne to see Military Wives, yeah. a perfectly lovely way to spend a couple of hours uh, that you wouldn't have been surprised to see as a TV special on Easter Sunday. Uh, that's. I think it's a reference to the fact that the BBC thing before, you know, but yeah, anyway. Uh, a code violation uh, was clearly promoted by the cinema itself. Yep. A new chicken restaurant had opened next to the cinema and they seemed to be doing slightly less business than they wished to. Uh, with that in mind, the cinema has allowed them to, in capital letters, Mark, yes. give away free samples of chicken wings to customers as they enter the cinema and even a small pot of barbecue sauce. <laughs> Myself and the good lady maths teacher her indoors did not partake in such a pungent cinema inappropriate snack. It's just not on. But many do. Um, Jen says, I want to write about a film I haven't seen yet. Okay. Military Wives. I'm not a military wife, but my mum is. My dad has been in the RAF all his life. And when my mum married him in the early 80s, it was a scary and lonely life. She was in a new country with none of her family and friends. And the constant threat of nuclear annihilation hang, uh, was hanging over them. Even back in the UK, death was constantly around them with the fear that one day the phone would ring or yep. there would be a knock on the door for them. And that's another detail that military wives gets very well. They buried more friends than anyone should ever have to. At this time, there was little support for military families, and so the wives relied on each other, and even now, 40 years later, my mum is friends with many of the women she met in those early days. My dad has since retired, but is still a reservist, so when his base started a military wives' choir, my mum, a keen singer, signed up. The past few years have seen her with a level of joy and engagement wholly new. Her fellow members are her other family and with love and support that is vital for those living in the bizarre existence that being in the military is, especially for a family member who did not sign up to join the forces but are now fully integrated into all its 
into all of that entails. My mum has performed in many venues for a wide variety of events and charities. Most times are happy, some are tragic, but the help and strength they give each other is immense. What I am gushingly trying to say is that these choirs are important. So it is with trepidation that news of the film is greeted. Mum didn't want something she loved cheapened or the force she is proud of misrepresented. She followed news eagerly. When finished, the local cinema put on special screenings for the military wives' choir in the area. They loved it right. and burst into song afterwards. There we go. The film has done justice to the topic and women it represents. Like the choir, it made my mum happy, and for that alone, I wish the film great success. She even appears a bit at the end, so now oh, she right. can say she was in a film yeah. with Christian Scott Scott Thomas. Thomas. Anyway, what a great email, and I that's it's lovely to hear. Jen, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Jen Cresswell, uh, your emails mail at bbc.co.uk in the next half hour. Oh, in the next half hour, we're going yes. to do a uh, fancy island. We're going to do the photograph. We're going to do sulfur. Right onward, we'll get through as many of those as possible. TV movie of the week. This week's pick of the best films on subscription-free television, including Stations of the Cross, Jurassic Park, Suffragette, Peeping Tom, Foxcatcher and Con Air. Jasmine Kershaw. Peeping Tom is a masterpiece it and is. needs some love, but realistically, if I'm channel hopping and Jurassic Park is on, that's, <laughs> that's where you're staying. <laughs> Andy Derbyshire says, Con Air, of course, put down the bunny. Matt Skate, it's got to be Con Air. There are two types of people in the world, people who love Con Air and people who haven't seen Con Air yet. That's very good. Nick Reed, Suffragette, please, not seen by nearly enough people when it came out and it'll be a nice warm-up act. Uh, for Rock. For Rocks Rock. coming soon. Peeping Tom, uh, a film that came out the same year as Psycho and one that should have been as lauded as Hitchcock's film, yet was criminally ignored for decades, despite perhaps having more to say about voyeurism and the objectification of women. That's from Misfit. And I think Foxcatcher is magnificent in its coldness, massively underrated. Watched Ruffalo yesterday in Dark Waters, revisiting DuPont. Uh, what is our TV movie of the week? Well, I am going to go for Peeping Tom because, you know, Powell and Pressburg are obviously very, very important to me. I think that what happened with um, with Peeping Tom, Mike Powell's Peeping Tom, when it came out, was that the critics just... They didn't, they didn't even dislike it. They really hated it in the same way that some critics really hated David Cronenberg's crash. And now when you look at, obviously, Martin Scorsese has been a great champion of Peeping Tom and, you know, was behind the, the restoration. And I was with him when he did, um, you know, a presentation of it at the BFI. I think you can probably find the interview that I did with him. If you want to hear somebody explaining why Peeping Tom is great, Google Mark Hermit's Martin Scorsese, Peeping Tom and the Scorsese interview, and he because he knows he understands. Um, it's a it's a really great film. It's really really creepy, and it is genuinely a film about the dangers of looking. And interestingly enough, it makes a fantastic double bill with Portrait of a Lady on Fire in terms of an analysis of the male gaze and the female gaze. I saw that at Warwick University Film Society. Peeping Tom. Yeah. Wow. I had a great time. That's a that's that's a good film society. Yeah. It was a very good film society. Uh, TV movie of the week, So Bad It's Bad. This week's choices are Bad Teacher, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, I Spit on Your Grave and Mr Winkle Goes to War. Adam G.S. Transformers, the answer is always Transformers. <laughs> Obi-Wan Dr- Jabroni. I'm pretty sure I can trace my tinnitus back to Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. Awful, awful movie. 
Mark McCormack, I'm a massive fan of Transformers, toys, comics, animated 1986 film and virtually anything from the original continuity. Revenge of the Fallen was the worst film I've ever seen. Awful. <laughs> John Davis, the only one I've, of these I've seen is Bad Teacher. Spectacular failure. So boringly offensive, I considered walking out. The only time I've ever considered doing so. Edward Morgan, Lucy Punch was great in it, but Bad Teacher was really bad. Paul Signal says, I spit in your gravy. It's the only option. <laughs> But it's the remake of I Spit in Your Gravy. It's not even the original. It's the remake. And Andy Goulding, Mr. Winkle Goes to War, would make a great double bill of Edward G. Robinson films that sound more risque than they are with and should be <laughs> paired on, with on. The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse, <laughs> which I had to look up. Um, Edward G. Robinson plays Dr. Clitterhouse. Humphrey Bogart plays Rox Valentine. And it's a brilliant doctor becomes a criminal to do research into the criminal mind. But there you go. You, you wouldn't want to put those together. Anyway, what's TV movie of the week so bad? It's well, bad. I mean, it is Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Although special, special mention do I spit in your grave, the remake by uh, Stephen R. Munro, which is one of those classic cases of why are we doing this exactly? It's, I mean, because not least because, I mean, the original I spit in your grave is the, almost the dictionary definition of problematic, but... There is there was a uh, compilation of essays edited by Martin Barker at the time of the Video Nasties scare called The Video Nasties. And there is an eloquent defence of I Spit on Your Grave that was then picked up by Carol J. Clover in her epochal work, Men, Women and Chainsaws. And anyone who hasn't read that book, I think you... go out now and read Men, Women and Chainsaws because it, what? It's very, um, we've, we've moved left here. No, into, we haven't. Into Operation Niche. Men, Women and Chainsaws yes. is one of the best books of film analysis that I have ever read. Okay. I will order it and have it delivered to my house. Do so. Do so. Okay. But I want you to read it to me. <laughs> it's a sort of nighttime reading. Okay. Would you do that? All right. Fine. Okay. It'll make you happy. So it's almost a quarter to five. So let's do some new stuff. Okay. So let's rattle through some things. Blumhouse Fantasy Island, which is a, reima a reimagining of the TV series, uh, prequel technically. Michael Penny is the guy who runs, you know, the, the TV series where all your fancies come true. Michael Penny is the guy who runs a mysterious island where all your fancies come true. But as the new set of guests arrive, it's clear that no one knows quite how it's done. This is just for me. But it's called Fantasy Island for a reason. A place where anything and everything is possible, you said. What you didn't say is how. Mr. Rourke tailors each fantasy specifically to the guest. Based on a one-page questionnaire. I will confess, I'm relatively new here, so how Mr. Rourke does what he does is as much a mystery to me as it is to you. What I do know is that your life is about to change. Forever. I hope you're ready. So, uh, you know, dreams can become nightmares. Be careful what you wish for. Um, therefore, no surprises when, you know, pool parties segue into sub-hostel sort of, you know, torture sequences and one of the one fantasy bumps into another one. Meanwhile, Michael Rooker, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, inter interestingly enough, still an amazing film. Michael Rooker wanders around as this kind of crazy guy who's like gone rogue on the island and maybe knows something and maybe doesn't. Um Apparently, the film cost around seven million. Has taken around forty-one million worldwide. So apparently, financially, it's worth it, which is good because on every other level, it's completely, utterly. It is the dictionary definition of missable. The plot makes no sense whatsoever, but 
that is the least of its problems. It's not that it makes no sense. It, it, it makes no interest. I couldn't tell whether during the comedy horror mishmash, whether I was supposed to be laughing or supposed to be screaming. All I knew was I was almost certainly not meant to be snoring, which is what I was doing. I neither believed in nor cared about or even remember the names of anybody. And I only saw it very, very recently. And uh, I'd like to say that the central characters chew the scenery, but most of them look like they are the scenery. It is absolutely the definition of missable. Does does the tight fit song, Fantasy Island, does that feature anywhere? No, but it did make me think how much more I enjoyed the Scooby-Doo feature films. Oh, OK, well, maybe we should uh, we should arrange for that. OK, well, so we're not wasting too no. much time. Rubbish. Let us Rubbish. On. Rubbish. Onward, which is the latest uh, Pixar digital animation film opens in a sort of fantastical world which is oddly reminiscent of Shrek, okay? But what's happened is that magic has been superseded by rationality, by electricity, by gas. So people no longer use magic, they use ordinary power sources. But we are still in a magical world in which there are magical creatures, but they're just not using magic. Uh, Two brothers, Chalk and Cheese brothers, uh, through a complicated setup end up botching a spell to bring back their lost father for a day. But they botch the spell, so they only bring back half of him. They bring him back from the waist down. And they then, the brothers are voiced by Tom Holland and Chris Pratt, they then have to embark on a quest that will reunite them and indeed him. And en route, they have to learn to deal with the new magical power that one of them apparently has. Here we go. Focus. Uh, Something wrong? Sorry, it's just your stance is, uh, here, chin up, elbows out, feet apart, back, slightly arched. Okay, how's that feel? Great. Oh, one more thing. Barley. Okay, okay. Magnora, get you on. Don't let the magic spook you. Okay. Elbows. What? Elbows up. No, 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 it's too high. That's too high. I'm trying to focus here. Oh, yeah, 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 focus, focus on the can. Focus! Focus! Holy! Stop it! Get it! It worked! The can is huge! And the band is huge! And you're... Oh no. See, the problem with that is it is a largely visual clip, which is that the making the thing being makes somebody small, as you could, I, you could just about figure yeah, out what's going on, it. but I'm sorry, yeah. but that's just the way the thing went. So... Uh, okay, the setup sounds super macabre, although it's actually sort of less macabre than it sounds because it's got a kind of you know magical thing to it. But it's definitely true that at the beginning of the film, I was thinking, I'm sorry, this doesn't have any of the simpli- the classic simplicity. Okay, think of Toy Story, right? Classic simplicity of Toy Story. When you're out of the room, toys come to life. Okay? Yeah. Or the classic simplicity of Inside Out. It's numbskulls, yeah? All these things are happening inside your head. Or the classic simplicity of Monsters, Inc., we scare because we care. You know, the, the, we, we carry all those things are really, even as you heard from me attempting to set up the plot for that clip, it's kind of complicated. And, and I was thinking, okay, well, it's a weird mix of derivative on the one hand and yet oddly obscure on the other hand. However, about halfway through, the film starts to find its feet, no pun intended. And then it barrels towards one of those finales which remind you why it is that Pixar are you know as successful as they are because from something which is kind of narratively chaotic and sort of all over the place it moves towards an ending which like a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat somehow pulls all these disparate elements together and then gives you a finale that you go oh wow that well done 
that's really good because you know you know in the end with any sort of with any narrative um that with any narrative like this particularly a fantasy narrative there are there are sort of key themes that emerge that that are sort of partly metaphorical and partly it's to do with you know the, the you anyway as we i don't want to spoil the end of it but essentially it's a story of two chalk and cheese brothers, both of whom are dealing with the loss, the loss of a parent, the loss of magic, the loss of something in their life. And inevitably, the course of the journey must be that what they discover is each other. But the way in which, particularly in the second half of the film, after what I thought was a slightly, you know, not quite as well done as it should be first half, pulled it together. So by the, by the end of it, I was like, OK, yeah, well done. You did it. I'm sold. Okay, I was because I was feeling all disappointed to start. I know. With. Well, that's exactly how I felt. Got a love of Pixar, and I hope that my review said that, that essentially I did. I did find myself about twenty minutes in thinking, "Well, I don't quite get the. They're in a magical world, but there isn't. I don't quite. It's a bit Shrekky, and it's a bit that, and it's not. It's not got the. It's not got the Toy Story pop, the Monsters Inc. pop. It hasn't got that classic, genius one line simplicity, and okay. yet by the end of it. It, it pulled off a finale that I had not expected it to achieve. All right, that's onward. It's uh, it's 4.51. What else have we got? Okay, so the photograph, which is this uh, interesting inter- interesting drama. Um, Lakeith Stanfield stars as a, uh, as a journalist from New York who is doing a story. Um, he's researching a story in Pointe de la Hache down in uh, Louisiana. And through a complicated plot contrivance, his path crosses with a museum curator Ray, uh, May, played by Ray, and she is the daughter of a photographer who is about to have a posthumous exhibition and in whose photographs he has become very interested. As their story plays out, we see flashbacks to the story of her mother and the two stories are intertwined, not unlike, and people may take this the wrong way, not unlike the intertwining of the notebook. Anyway, here's a clip. I didn't know you were coming. No, uh, you were supposed to invite me. <laughs> I'm sorry. Next time. Uh, what did you think about the movie? Uh, to be honest, I was a little distracted. Wait. Uh, so, I, so I kept running back in my mind how you might respond. Uh, to me asking you for a drink after. So that was you asking me? <laughs> that was elaborate. Well, in, in my mind, it wasn't that forward. You know what I mean? It was more smoother than, than that. So what then happens is that we get these kind of intertwining stories, these intertwining uh, love stories, and uh, at two at diff- different timescales and different locations, and the, the movie is kind of shuffling its cards around in terms of you know time and space. The film has a, it's written and directed by uh, Stella McGee and it has this kind of moody, very, very sort of seductive air. It's got this kind of jazzy feel to it with a jazzy score behind it. It's beautifully shot by Mark Schwartzbard, I think, Schwartzbard, I think is the name. And I, what I felt was that the characterizations are very well done and there is real electricity at the centre of the, at the heart of the film. Um, occasionally, it felt like the narrative was tying itself up in too many contrivances for its own good because the narrative contrivances were almost getting in the way of the central relationship. But it was it was done with, you know, style and elegance and I loved the performances and I found myself won over by it despite wrestling 
with the plot and some of the contrivances of the plot. You had a lobby correspondent for... Oh, for Onward, yes. Onward. Yes, uh, and this is entirely my mistake because uh, normally the lobby correspondents go into the top ten, but we did get this very nice lobby correspondent from Kate Guiney. She'd been to see Onward. and uh, Kate is ten years and ten months, and she's from Belfast. Hi, my name is Kate, and I'm just out of the cinema from seeing Onward in Belfast. Um, It made my dad cry, but um, it was really fantastic, and it was great, great animation. Um, the only thing that was bad was the way they represented the unicorns. They're beautiful beings. <laughs> that was that was genius. That was Can the, we play that again? That's the only thing bad. I'm sorry, yeah, they, they it, it was a bad portrayal of, of unicorns. unicorns. I want that played again. Hi, my name is Kate, and I'm just out of the cinema from seeing Onward in Belfast. Um, it made my dad cry, but um, it was really fantastic, and it was great, great animation. Um, the only thing that was bad was the way they represented the unicorns. They're beautiful beings. You didn't pick up on that. I know, you never, you I know and, that, that. and that's why I've been superseded. By Kate. By Kate. Kate Guiney, thank you very much. Thank you for that. If you want to be a lobby correspondent, go see a movie, uh, step out once it's finished, and speak discreetly into your mobile phone and then email to mayo at bbc.co.uk. What else you got? OK, so Sulphur and White. I've seen two films with Mark Stanley this week. Run, which is coming out next week, and then Sulphur and White. This is based on the true life story of NSPCC campaigner David Tate. Um, as a child growing up in uh, South Africa, he is uh, subjected to uh, terrible abuse. Um, later on, he's become a London trader, notable for his kind of emotional, emotionally withdrawn character. He's very good at his job at staring at a screen and reading the market. But it seems to be because what he's managed to do is somehow isolate his emotions and therefore, you know, he's, it's almost like he's kind of like a machine. So he's walled off his responses. He begins a relationship with uh, Vanessa, played by Emily Beecham, who they start serious about the relationship and she wants to meet his family. He agrees to meet his dad, from whom he has been estranged for ages and played by Dugray Scott. Here's a clip. How did you get in? What? Did you take the tube? I drive. Parking space in the basement. My name on a plaque. Got that when I made the management committee. Three? Three months ago? Mm. Vanessa, she'll be along shortly. She, um, she's one of the top earners in her division. What happened to the first one? Heard you got kids you don't see. And provide. Absent father sort of thing. Hmm? Yeah. Dad doesn't get to see his kids. It's, um... Failure on my part, really. But there again. Leaving them alone. Best thing for them, really. Films written by Susie Farrell and uh, directed by Julian Jarrell. And I have to say, I found it very, very emotionally powerful. I mean, it has terrific performances. It is played very, very well. The story is really about, you know, post-traumatic stress and the, and the way in which the, a legacy of abuse lives on. But it is also important to say that the film, which is based on a true story, is is redemptive and that is a very very important part of the drama it is it's a a a tough watch it is very well played it is i think you know done with with you know heart and conviction and i knew nothing about the story before i saw the film at all and uh i was very glad about the redemptive element in it because it is a portrayal of some very very dark material 
but played with a purpose. I want very quickly to just do uh, Vitalina Varela, Varela, if that's possible. What's it called again? Vitalina Varela, which is the latest from Pedro Costa, um, who's the guy who made horse money. Um, Peter Bradshaw described him as the Samuel Beckett of cinema, um, which I think is a very interesting description. His films focus on the on people in the margins. The style of the film is a very strange mix of the real and the surreal it's a way of photographing environments that almost make them look like something out of David Lynch. Scenes mis- unfold mysteriously and very slowly and kind of tempt you to stumble into the meaning of the film. Um, Rita Lynn plays a version of herself, uh, married to a manicat Verdi in, in the 80s. The husband then went to Lisbon promising to call for her, but he hasn't done. She then arrives in the wake of his death to be told, there is nothing for you here. You are too late. There is nothing for you here. And then the rest of the film then plays out in the kind of aftermath of this life lived at a distance. And what the film manages to do is you have to, it's a mesmerizing experience. You have to tune yourself to the rhythm of it. You have to attune yourself to the fact that, you know, I talk about a lot about show, don't tell. Sometimes this is almost tell, don't, don't tell, don't show. But I think it's a really interesting and important film. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. What's your film of the week? <sighs> Military Wives. Next week, Gugu and Bartaraw talks about misbehaviour. Well, that was the show and it was, you know, extraordinary. You sound exactly like Steve Wright when you said that was the show. Can I just say before we, before we conclude... I mean, because we're already on like part four. Why have you handed me a photograph of you aged 12? Oh. Well, there was a bizarre email which was sent with absolutely no explanation. It's just, it only consists of a photograph of me. It's my Radio Nottingham promo photo. You've got so many teeth. The two things. Firstly, you look very much like child one in that picture. Secondly, yeah. you have more teeth than a person should have in their head. Right. And third, same amount I've got at the moment. No, but no, but now so, so, just, for some reason it doesn't look like that because there you look like toothy mayo. But what's genius about this, as not only because of the upturned, this must have been why upturned collar is it eighties? Uh, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, it's eighty two. Okay, eighty two upturned collar, mullety, spiky top, mullet at the back, and it's in a frame on sale for four ninety nine. Four ninety nine, and it's signed. That's pretty good. Signed. To be honest, most of that stuff goes out like for 5p. So the fact it's 4.99. You know it's worse than that. It's actually signed to somebody. Yeah, I obviously gave it signed it to someone. You signed you know, it to Ella. To Ella. Well, Ella. Ella's probably so passed away now. So Ella Ella best wishes Simon. Ella got this thing. She put it in a frame and now Okay, well we'll tweet it because 4.99 we'll put it out there. Well, I would have, you know, Radio Nottingham's average age of listener was, you know, let's so this is 1982 and I'm being generous. They were probably in their sixties, <laughs> and so they might Ella might not be with us anymore. Anyway, so this is probably part of Ella's estate, which is being Radio Nottingham. It's a great picture. It's not. Why? Why were, why were your collars turned up? It's because it was 1982. Which do you know? I've just realised next year I'll have. No, not next year. Year after next, it'll be 40 years. 40 years in in show business. 40 years in show business. Yes. So when did so when did you first broadcast? 1982. So I first had a review published in 1987. So I'm 35 years. You're, you're a stripling. Really. I'm a what? You're a, a stripling. I, mean, I a thought stripling. you said I was a stripper. And that. <laughs> Before we finish, <clears throat> and we've got DVD of the week coming up. 
It's a film by the director of the Full Monty out this weekend, incidentally, in, an, in an unrelated event. An email from Tom Messenger. I wish to defend producer Simon's jokes against the scepticism... No, enough, enough. ...shown by Mark on the last podcast. I consider these vignettes to be a highlight of the show and a reservoir of genuine surreality that adds greatly to my enjoyment of life. I can imagine them being published at some point in the future, graphically typeset, like a piece of concrete poetry. And and on this email, yes. producer Simon has written, VG, 10 out of 10, listener of the week. Mm. <laughs> All of which is teeing up nicely for this week's DVD of the week. <laughs> hey, Mark! Shutting off my brain. Yes, hey, Simon. Hey, Mark. Yes, Simon. Bear with me. I'm just... Just doing my online order for this week's groceries. OK. <laughs> spices. I do, do you need some spices? OK, let's say for the purposes of humour that I do. I need some spices. Hang do on. Do you? Do you know how heavy a red hot chili pepper is? <laughs> uh, no. Give it away. Give it away. Give it away now. Give it away. Give it away now. Yeah, give it I get away. That. No, give I know. It, give it away. I know what that is, but why is that the name of a film? It's a song. I know the song, but why are you saying? Oh, I see. Oh, give it away. Give it away. I'm sorry. I thought you were just saying give it away, but you were Take saying that give it. chili pepper. Here's the problem with that joke. Weigh it. Here's the problem with that joke: is it it requires being written down. W e i g h. W e i g h. What you should have said: give it away. W e e i g h. I just thought you were just saying give it away. That joke is not up to your usual standard. Yeah, but you don't that like the joke. usual standard. No, that's not, it's not down to your usual standard. Yeah, exactly. I think, actually, officially, that's the first of Producer Simon's jokes that haven't... I thought it was funny. Anyway, but so you, so you saw it written down. As How's he written down? Has he written it down as give it away? Wager. Yes, he's written it down. So, fine. So that joke is a joke that needs to be read on a piece of paper. I think if you play it back, you'll hear that I did emphasise give it away. No, give it away. Simon, saying... Give it away, give it away now. No, saying way doesn't mean it's spelt W-E-I-G-H. It just means you're saying give it away, give, give it, it away. away. Give it away. On the way. As, anyway, as luck would have it, there is a delivery driving-themed movie out on DVD on Monday. Yes, Sorry We Missed You is available to cheer everyone up <laughs> on all home That's entertainment formats. That's a better joke. But is it a keeper? Other contenders include Doctor Sleep and Air Doll. Lewis Dunn, I really dislike Doctor Sleep. Give The Shining a big book of rules and destroyed so much of the mystery of the darkly ambiguous original. Felt more like an X-Men film than a horror film. Lisa Downey, not a lot to choose from, but Doctor Sleep was better than expected. Paul Cameron, easy. Doctor Sleep, not that scary, but far better than I expected. Looking forward to seeing the director's cut. It's a thin week. What's our DVD of the week? It is Doctor Sleep, because it was so much better. Doctor Doctor Sleep. Because it was so much better than anyone had any right to expect. And actually, I thought Ewan McGregor was pretty good in it. And um, and it, it did an interesting job of combining stuff from the Stephen King source material and from the Kubrick fans. Although, as I, as I said when I reviewed it the first time around, Stephen King fans will like it much more than, than Stanley Kubrick fans will like it. Because Stanley Kubrick fans get very, very tetchy about anything that messes with the master. You don't want to mess with the master. You don't want to mess with the master. Right. Although, although I just like to say, on the one hand, two thousand and one. On the other hand, eyes wide. Can't say that. Well, they'll bleep it. They will. They'll birdsong it. I 
can't believe it. I just saw producer Simon turn like that saying, you've got to cut this filth. Cut this filth out. But everyone knows, everyone knows what it is. Anyway, thank you for, on that controversial and divisive note. Eyes wide. Indicating. You can't cut that. You can't cut that. That's perfectly fine. You know what's happened? The end of our one minute, 33 and 12 seconds happened. We actually, we ran out. And that was it. We ran out of time. time. That's it. Here comes the algorithm. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Okay, you're going to win that a problem here. A dramatic rescue mission from the depths of space. You're 200,000 miles out. You're in a spacecraft that's dying. 13 Minutes to the Moon Season 2 tells the real story of Apollo 13. I literally got on my knees and prayed. 13 Minutes to the Moon. Well, we don't have much time. From the BBC World Service. There's one whole side of that spacecraft missing. Listen on BBC Sounds. That's the end right there.